Good afternoon and welcome to Keys to Deciphering the Resource Demands of CyberTools, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by ProTennis. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You could send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box. We'll take them later in the program, just so you see how we're going to spend our time today. First, we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Jenny Cordero, CIO at Brook Army Medical Center, Rich Temple, VP and CIO and HIPAA Privacy Officer with Deborah Hart and Lung Center, and Brian Reavy, Chief Information Security Officer with ProTennis. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Chani, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me uh, this afternoon. I look forward to the conversation. And so I do have to uh, do my disclaimer because I am part of the Department of Defense and part of the Defense Health Agency, but I'm on today with my own views and experiences, and I'm not representing the DHA or the DOD in any of my statements today. But with that being said, um, I'm the Chief Information Officer for Brook Army Medical Center here in San Antonio, Texas. We're a level one trauma hospital serving uh, San Antonio along with another uh, level one hospital. So what makes us a little bit unique is that we also see non-military beneficiaries in our facilities because we, we are a trauma hospital. We are a full spectrum facility from, you know, ambulatory primary care and to end of life care. And we have a range of specialties that how that we cover and take care of. We have about 10,000 staff members and we serve around three or four hundred thousand beneficiaries in the San Antonio area. Very good, Jenny. Thank you. Rich. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me today. My name is Rich Temple. I am the vice president, chief information officer for the Deborah Heart and Lung Center in the wilds of southern New Jersey. And for those of you who don't think New Jersey has wild areas, uh, well, I'm here to tell you that I'm in one. Um, <laughs> wild, wild, wild in a different sense. Um, the Deborah Heart and Lung Center is an 89-bed uh, cardiovascular specialty hospital. Uh, I said we're, we're in southern New Jersey. Uh, we are an alliance partner of the Cleveland Clinic Heart and Vascular Institute, and we're very proud of the work that we do in, in the cardiovascular realm and in the pulmonary realm. Uh, if you're looking uh, you're looking for a place to give birth or to have orthopedic surgery, we are not it. We're a specialty hospital, but what we do, what we do, we do really well. Um, another thing which is very unique about Deborah is that we're one of three hospital systems in the country that doesn't balance bill patients here at our hospital. It's part of our mission, along with St. Jude's and Shriners. Uh, if you have care here at the hospital, um, we go after your insurance like we have to in order to keep the doors open, but we do not balance bill patients. And it makes us unique. It's something which is really embedded in the DNA of everything we do here. And it makes it really kind of a special place to be able to uh, know that we're taking care, we're taking care of people who really need the care uh, without putting any, as put as our founder would say, there's no price tag on life. It's like anyone who can, anyone who needs us can access us and um, we can give them top notch care. So really a nice, very nice, exciting place to work and uh, proud of what we do and looking forward to our conversation today. Very good, Rich. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so I am the Chief Information Security Officer at Pretennis. We are a uh, SaaS-based platform startup uh, out of Baltimore. We've been in business just under 10 years. 
Um, and I've been with Pretendus for six and a half now, filling various roles, uh, including the last three years, being totally focused on the security of our platform. Um, Pretendus is about a hundred employee startup, uh, venture backed, and we are uh, focused on delivering solutions to healthcare organizations to help them deal with any of their compliance needs. So healthcare compliance analytics is kind of what we're focused on. A lot of um, machine learning and analytic work that our systems do to help hospitals uh, make sure that they're adhering to HIPAA rules around privacy, uh, as well as uh, drug diversion. And uh, really happy to be here. Excellent. Brian, we're a happy we're a happy customer of yours, by the way. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> happy to have you. In the wilds of New Jersey. In the wilds of New Jersey. That's right. <laughs> Very good. Very good. All right. A little table setting here. Chani, let's start with you. How would you describe the bandwidth of your cyber team today? How far are, is it stretched? I mean, they get to sit around and play Candy Crush all day. I mean, I have way more people than most people have. I, and right now that they're on, they're all like groaning in their chairs right now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's safe to say that I don't think any facility, especially in healthcare, has an, uh, has too much cyber personnel and assets. And everyone is stretched then from all of the, the different aspects as part of their, their roles. I mean, you know, of course, in, in the DOD, we follow the risk management framework, which is very, you know, very closely related to the NIST framework. And just, you know, in order to do all of those intricate controls and mitigation plans, it's a full-time job in itself for every system that comes in. But I mean, you know, we have high, uh, HIPAA security that falls underneath my, my division. Of course, you know, we track training, you know, validating, onboarding and new medical devices and, and equipment and then constant scanning and trying to figure out what's out there, what's in our network. You know, they work hand in hand with our engineers. So, yes, yes. And they're stretched very well. Jenny, in your system, is it in the military health system, is there more uniformity of procedures? Is it almost like every every one of the uh the facilities uh follows the same playbook as opposed to with all the health systems out there the independent ones they could be doing things a little bit differently you guys try and keep everything sort of by the, uh, the same playbook yeah no excellent question and so this is why i really enjoy sharing the you know our stories because i think there's some things that private sector can really learn um from us and so we have of course you know regulations and the, you know, our headquarters, you know, uh, corporate, so to speak, is the ones that come up with the regulations and policies. And so our policies are pretty well standard. And of course, you know, we have various levels on, we have very leadership levels on enforcing, you know, said policies. Now, each facility has the ability to have some autonomy in the way of how they execute some of the policies and or they can look at best practices and say, hey, you know, this should be an enterprise wide type of uh, action. And then we will elevate it up so that all of the other organizations are able to take advantage of that. Interesting. OK, very good. Uh, Rich, your thoughts. Well, from a information systems perspective, from our department, I'd say we're uh, very small but very mighty. We we don't have a dedicated HIPAA security team. We're just too small for that. But we do have a very robust uh, network engineering team, and everything they do uh, revolves around cybersecurity in some form or fashion. So uh, they are stretched. You know, with cybersecurity, the, the essence of it is that the bad guys always are one step ahead of us, so we have to be. We're always playing catch up. They find something, we find. You know, we 
we, we learn about it, we patch it, we move on, and we hope that nothing happens. So I always feel like, you know, there, we're, always, we're always in chase mode, which um, is challenging. Uh, in our world, and we can talk more about this later probably, we have um, a, a 24 by 7 um, outsourced uh, cybersecurity tactical operations center. And that does take a fair, uh, quite a bit of burden off of, um, off of our team in terms of the day-to-day monitoring of the network for uh, apparent behavior. But even with that, I mean, it's everything's everything's changing so quickly, and more and more places are being hit, and the attacks are more and more devious in terms of how um, how they're going about it. That it's it's always it's always a chase, like I said, and it's tough, but we we have to do it. What option do we have? There's one thing that keeps me up at night as a uh, chief information officer. It is a cyber attack. I mean, many things keep me up at night, but I think that's the one that uh, the most keeps me up, and it could happen at any time. Rich, we never discussed this too much. We probably, I'm sure we could do a whole webinar around it. But when did you make that decision to outsource that um, that portion of your cybersecurity to that company to take that off your plate? Um, I assume it was something that previously you were doing in house that you said, you know what, this is not good enough. Us doing this with this small team is not good enough. There's options out there now. We're going to take this off our plate. Is that kind of how it went? Yeah, I think you, um, you you teed up the question perfectly and you did a lot of the heavy lifting for me in answering because that's exactly what we did. We um, said this is cybersecurity is such a serious thing. It is so multi-tentacled in terms of what you have to look for. There are so many different things that you have to protect against that we really need a third party that can monitor our network 24-7, that can put the appropriate honeypots and intrusion devices and uh, behavioral analytics to uh, heuristics to be able to uh, look for unusual patterns of behavior. It's, not, it's something we just couldn't do ourselves, and we could ill afford not to be able to do this in this in environment. So think we were able to get the support we needed to get someone whose role in life is solely to monitor network and advise as to any kind of unusual things that they see and work with our team to address those things. All right. Very good. Very good. Brian, your thoughts? Uh, just echo what everyone said so far. Uh, very thin. Um, Richard comment about being strong but mighty uh, definitely resonates with me. We have a very small, uh, dedicated security team. Um, maybe a little bit of a flip from what you have, dedicated security, not a dedicated network team. Um, so our infrastructure and security teams take care of as much of the network as they can, making sure everything's up as well as our IT group. Um, but yeah, just very stretched thin, especially because of just the breadth of responsibilities that we have with cybersecurity um, and working in a regulated industry, working in a cloud environment, you know, everything from what would normally fall into compliance, IT, security, software development, you know, our security team's trying to handle a little bit of all of that the best that we can. So definitely very thin and uh, very broad base trying to cover here. Yeah. So Brian, you're in an interesting position, especially for the purposes of this call. You're the CISO of ProTennis. So you're trying to ensure the security of ProTennis. Every uh, potential customer is dealing with third-party risk management. You're mm -hmm. trying to propose yourself as a tool, bring us in as a tool. We're going to help you with your security. You, When you do that, you become, you're proposing yourself as a new third party. They want to make sure your security's up to snuff, right? That's because right. Because if they're going to bring you in. So I would imagine there are conversations that potential customers have with you to yep. make sure 
you're where you need to be as just like they would any third party. So how do those, some of those conversations go? What are they asking you? What do they want to know? Um, I'd say most of, uh, most of those conversations are around, I would call it like security hygiene. You know, there's a lot of things that just need to be done to kept up a lot of the third party risk you see, uh, and vulnerabilities out there are misconfigurations, vulnerable packages that have been out there for years, things like that. And so, you know, a lot of just that care and feeding of the system, uh, is a lot of what we talk about. I think the other part, because, um, for a lot of groups, you know, the, the cloud can be more of a scary place. You know, I don't want to put my data up in the cloud. And, um, you know, we'll do a pretty robust walkthrough of our architecture and and how we've configured the system so that we can give our customers that level of comfort that, you know, we know what we're doing. We've put a lot of thought into this. We have very uh, stringent controls around changes to the environment that all get peer reviewed. Um, a lot of those kinds of controls. That's where those conversations usually end up. When, when in your work with customers, when you take on a customer, is there any degree of risk that you're assuming by integrating with them that you want to make sure, hey, for our own sake as pro tennis, mm -hmm. we got to make sure we're not opening ourselves up by taking on a customer's data or a customer? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, certainly not as much risk as they're taking on with us because it's, you know, it's their healthcare data that we're becoming the custodians of here. Um, but there, is, we've definitely had some conversations internally around either customers that have had cyber breaches that then we're looking for possible, you know, follow-on attacks into our systems. Uh, we take a lot of data in from the customers who are always worried about malicious files coming in from a compromised customer. Um, certainly, uh, <laughs> one of those things that keeps us up at night, yeah. right? It, but people don't think about that. It's kind of an interesting issue, but people don't talk about that too much. All right. Right. Channy, we're going to uh, start with you. Um, this is sort of the big, the meat, the nugget here that we're going to talk about. New cyber tools are supposed to make your life easier. Um, how could one, how, how could it possibly not work out that way? We talked about resource constraints. You're looking for a tool. Somebody's bringing a tool to you. You have to figure out what is it going to take for us to run this tool? Do I have the people, the bandwidth, the capacity? Everybody who's going to sell you something is going to say, it's nothing. It does it by itself. You set it and forget it. Remember that? I think that was one of those uh, things they were trying to sell on the TV. Set it and forget it. So that's what you're going to be hearing. How can you figure out if that's true? Um, and how do you determine, again, if it's not all equal. Uh, running a tool could require a specific skill set or a knowledge of a specific technology. Do you have that and do you have capacity in that resource? So your thoughts on how you figure out what it takes to run a tool. Yeah, so I could tell you by example. Um, and in an organization that I will not name, uh, we had a, a security tool um, that was supposed to be able to tell us what's on our devices. And the tool was effective in that, in the sense of letting us know what you know patches were missing, what applications that were necessary on the devices, but it was also resource intensive. And we didn't have the, the hardware or the hardware that we had wasn't really robust enough to handle that type of activity in the background. And so it consumed so much of the computer utilization that we had to purchase either uh, solid state drives for our desktops and or we had to purchase higher RAM and memory 
for our laptops because we couldn't handle the tool. Well, then that's an additional cost that wasn't factor when mm-hmm. we purchased the tool, yep. right? And so that was very painful for the organization to go through. And so now it's those questions are asked, you know, what is the executable file that's in the background? How resource intensive is it? So then it's part of that decision to purchase the item or not. So it definitely changed your process going forward. You will never buy another tool without sort of saying, hey, I got a question for you. Right. Right. Really interesting. Very good. Uh, Rich, your thoughts? Those learnings are always invaluable because you can only make decisions based on the known knowns or the unknowns that you think you might be able to absorb. There are unknown unknowns and um, unintended things that happen. And, um, you know, I guess we as CIOs always, we can't say that'll never happen, but we, uh, we, ab- we, absor- we absorb the experience and we blaze forward, right? This, which, is always, which is always good. So as far as new cyber tools that ostensibly make our lives easier, but might make them, uh, might make them more difficult, you know, early on when we started with our partner that um, was monitoring our network, we were getting notifications for all sorts of stuff. It was overly aggress- it was overly aggressively notifying, and it was driving us bonkers. And what happens with that is that when you have all these alerts, the vast majority of which are noise, you start getting alert fatigue, and maybe you miss something that's really, really important. Also, you know, one of the things we've evolved over time with our partner is that we're able to get a lot of the latest uh, IOCs or indicators of compromise loaded into our firewall, and um, that cuts out a lot of the noise as well because we headed off at the we headed things off at the past before anyone sees anything. So, you know, a well-intentioned tool that's doing robust monitoring can send your team, especially if it's a small team, into orbit chasing a lot of things that maybe really aren't worth chasing, and. So you have to you have to sort of get strike that balance where you know how do I proactively mitigate against these things even before they hit? How do I make sure that our team are chasing the things that really have the potential to be dangerous and are not just swatting at um, swatting at random flies that don't really have an impact? So those are always concerns, um, and I think you want you want to make sure that you know you want to make sure that you're I mean, you, you, sit, you sit here on the slide talking about AI. Everybody says they use AI. Uh, what do you mean by AI? <laughs> so I think that's you. You know, as you're looking to select a partner, select a vendor, you know, ask those questions. Don't just take it at face value that oh, they use AI, they must be good. So there's a lot, a lot of different things you have to factor in. But really, at the end of the day, the tool that you use has to be powerful enough to protect you, but not, um, but also discerning enough. I say so you're not chasing your tail. Right. Right. So, Brian, I know uh, ProTennis talks about AI, right? That's right. So, I mean, it's tough these days. Even Let's say you've got it and and it's good. People are instantly sort of skeptical now, right? When when they've got AI, they go, everybody's got AI. Uh, But tell me your thoughts about, you know, Channy talked about the sort of running in the background, overwhelming sort of uh, the resource, you know, resources. Mm-hmm. of the uh, the network or the hardware or di- different things like that. So that was one issue. Rich talked about getting uh, over-alerted. You know, these can be unanticipated things that come up with a tool that, you know, maybe you're not hearing during the demo process, sales process, even checking right. references and things like that. But give me your thoughts. Yeah, I think um, 
one thing just to follow up on what uh rich said here uh one of the things that i know we've run into with having a very small team we rely a lot on our partners inside the organization to actually like execute the fixes do things address you know whatever alerts might be coming up um and one of the things I've seen, especially when you're getting all of those false positives, especially if it's a change to the behavior of the system that you're not used to, and so you automatically assume these are all good, uh, you know, or you assume they're bad, I should say. They're good alerts, meaning there's something wrong. Um, you know, it's really hard after you've had a number of these false positives to regain the trust of the teams. And so, you know, it's one thing for the security team now to go to engineering or to go to IT and say, look, I, I have these alerts, so we need to address them. And their immediate answer is, ah, do you really believe that tool anymore? It's wrong all the time, right? Oh. And so really getting that, you know, that trust is very easy to lose and very hard to build back up. Um, and I think that goes into what you're talking about there. How are you going to select then? You know, that's something that's very hard to know before you're in the tool, right? Until it knows your environment. Uh, everyone's environment is a little bit different. We run into this at tennis because everyone's EHR is slightly different. Even if they all have the same name on the label, they're just slightly different inside. They've all been customized. So having something that can really understand that environment, um, you know, that's that's a really tricky problem to solve for. All right. <clears throat> Very good. Um, Rich, let's go with you first on this one. Application rationalization is a major trend in healthcare with very good reason. Has it also pervaded the security realm? I assume this makes the bar to purchase a new tool even higher. We're trying to get, we're trying to reduce costs, reduce complexity. That does a whole bunch of things, improves security, improves support, and things like that. I would imagine that pervades everywhere, including security. But your thoughts around that? It, it definitely does, Anthony. That's something that we always look at. We don't want to have a myriad of different uh, systems that either nominally talk to each other or don't talk to each other at all. Um, when we add other systems, we add um, support obligations. We add uh, interfacing and interoperability obligations that may not work perfectly. So we don't we don't want to just be willy nilly across several different systems for uh, for different things. Sometimes too within systems you have three or four systems that are doing more or less the same thing, and which system is a source of truth and for what sub you know for what substrata of the uh, organization um, is that the source of truth? So yeah, application rationally is really a big deal, and it has to a large extent permeated the security realm because I mean there are many different there are many different pieces of a a, a good security framework. I mean. You'd have the uh, 24 by 7 Tactical Operations Center. You might have a SIM. You have uh, you know, firewalls. You have a multitude of different things. And if each of those things is sort of off in their own little silo, then you're not fully realizing the benefits of it. So um, if you're going to if you're going to be taking on additional additional third party vendor partners, you want to make sure that they're going to be able to talk as seamlessly as possible and the best way to do that sometimes is not branching out to new vendors, but using what you can under the roof of the vendor you have. You have to weigh that against, are you getting the full uh, set of benefits that you feel like you need from a cybersecurity offering within that, within that family? So yeah, application rationalization is very important, but um, you don't want to be going too far out on a limb in terms of sacrificing functionality or usability to make it happen. Yeah, great point. Jenny, um, you know, if we have a whole in our toolkit, we want to fill the hole, but um, a lot of times, as Rich said, there's overlap, right? There's there's a piece of functionality that's replicated in multiple tools, or there's just simply multiple tools, but 
this department likes this tool and that department likes that tool. And how am I going to, I've talked to both of them. Nobody wants to compromise everybody. This is absolutely the tool they need. It, it's a very difficult process. It's super important. Um, but your thoughts around application rationalization. Yeah, I mean, exactly what you uh, just mentioned is that, you know, there's so many tools as, you know, healthcare continues to become digitized and you have so many offerings and so many great products out there. And so, you know, you kind of buy it all and you want to, you know, you want to use it all. But of course, you know, healthcare is also always hurting for resources and funding. And so how do you decide which ones that should be uh, sunsetted. And so when I thought about this question, I thought about it in, a, in the framework of the cyber and what the ramifications for that. And I think it goes to, with that sunsetting process, right? That decommissioning process of those legacy systems, because you want to ensure that the data is available, right? It's, if it's a patient's record and it's a, we need to make sure that that data was actually put a part of that patient's record. And then of course, you know, you have laws and, and, and you know, and, things of that nature of how long you need to safeguard that information. But you can't just take a server and unplug it and then, you know, toss it in the dumpster bin, right? right. It goes through a whole process through that, you know, if it's a, if it's on-prem. On and then now that we're, you know, so many organizations going to, to the cloud, you know, like put it in the cloud, right? Well, what mm-hmm. happens when you decide that you don't want to use that application anymore and now it's in the cloud and and you know have you decided or discussed you know with that third party partner is that how do you get that data back and how do you, mm-hmm. you, know, you download that data and then then go through the decommissioning process at that point so yeah lots of things to consider yeah so uh, just to follow up on that jenny it's uh it's like i hate to say it, but it's like getting married it's like you, maybe you need a prenup do you want to make sure that getting out isn't going to be too hard um you know, application rationalization is huge, but I think to your point, it's very hard. It's not easy. It's not, oh, look, these two are duplicate. X, done. I mean, this is, there's data there, there's users, you have to get agreement, and then you actually have to get out. You need, where's the data? Where are we going to put it? Like, when do we get to stop paying this company a check? Right? That's ultimately mm-hmm. where we want to be. And that could be way after we stop using it. Right. We're gonna... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could do, I could even tell you on a personal level, there is a storage company that I won't name that I have used that <laughs> I get free storage right now through like Microsoft or Google. Yeah. But I still pay that monthly fee because being a pool, you know, 10,000 pictures down in the last 10 years is too hard. Yep. And so instead, I just pay the monthly bill because I just I don't have time for that. <laughs> it's just so hard to end these things. So I think it it, it makes this bar it should be very high, right? This bar of signing on. Um, but Brian, to you know, listen, mm-hmm. if you're missing a tool, a piece in your toolbox, like the pro tennis piece, right? Then we get the piece. We don't want to duplicate, but if we need a piece, we get a piece. We got a hole we have to fill. We get we fill the hole, right? That's right. So what are you thinking? What are you thinking about what you're hearing about around application rationalization? Um uh definitely i think we've uh we've seen the overlap problem uh all over the place right we uh you know we kind of joke around internally that every tool has 70% of a solution but it's not the same 70% so you're buying three <laughs> or four tools and ending up with 300% of a solution um 
and they all want to charge that premium price, right? So it's uh, it is really hard. I think the other thing that we are always looking at is like, are we actually going to reduce the number of people that we need? Like, is this tool actually helping us accomplish our goals faster, better? And, uh, you know, for the people that we have having to deal with it, is is it making their lives better? Because like, I can buy the best tool in the world. And if all my security engineers hate it, they all quit. And now the tool can't run itself, right? So it's got to be something that the teams can use and they can trust. Um, but yeah, a lot of it goes back uh, to the AI question earlier. There's a lot of promise around this is going to save you you know, you don't have to hire three more security engineers if you buy our product. I'm like, well, it's really hard to know before you get in there and you actually start using the tool and seeing if you've got the right processes in place. Uh, do you have to update all of your policies, all your procedures to make sure you're using the new tool? Um, it is, it's a lot of work to bring something new on like this. Brian, let me ask you, you, you mentioned before the concept of losing confidence in a tool, mm-hmm. um, either from false positives or over alerting, or I guess it could be any number of issues. Sure. Um, that sounds like a serious problem, and it, it, it maybe you get one shot at it, right? So if you if you're a CIO or a CISO and you you've sort of championed a tool, or at least you've 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 shortlisted it, right? So theoretically, the business or whatever identifies the need, um, or maybe they haven't. Maybe if it's a back end security thing, you've identified the need, you've championed a tool, and you kind of get one shot. Right to from what you're saying, you get one shot to roll it out properly before people say this doesn't work. So we're kind of done with it. So That's talk right. more about that sort of one shot concept of when you're going to roll it out, you got to do it right. So here are some things to think about. Yeah, I think um, you're absolutely right. You, a lot of times, you really do have that one shot to get it right. Um, or if you if you know it's too big to do in one shot, you've got to have a really clear plan about rolling out each piece of it, making sure each piece is right. Right. It'd be a little bit better to roll it out slowly, but correctly than a massive rush job. And then again, nobody trusts the tool. The data is no good. Everyone just stops using it. Um, the. I think it's going back to that trust, though. I'm trying to remember the second half of your question now. <laughs> I've lost it. It's just basically about that one shot opportunity for yeah. uh, rolling out a tool. So any any other, any advice for people? CIOs and CISOs to think about to get it mm. right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Um, so the other thing I know that we've seen both uh as a as a purchaser of security tools as well as you know, we sell something that's uh similar to a security tool at least. Um, making sure you've got the resources lined up ahead of time. One of the biggest struggles that we've seen is somebody buys the tool, they love the tool, and then they tell us, you know, six months from now, we're gonna start implementing this tool. And it's always six months away, right? So making sure you've actually got the buy-in from the organization, all the supporting teams that are going to need to make this work, especially uh, the data owners. A lot of times the data owners, they don't they don't care about security. I mean, they care, but like, that's not their job. So, you know, you're showing up saying, hey, data team, I need all this data. I need to just send it over here into the cloud where it's scary. And they're like, this sounds terrible. I could drag my feet. I don't want to do it. I don't have buy-in. This isn't our team's priority, right? So really getting that institutional buy-in up ahead of time, um, I think it's crucial to having a successful deployment. Very good. Channing, I want to follow up on uh, that sort of issue you were talking about before when you, you purchased that tool and it it required additional purchases to make it work. As you were going through that, um, do you have any advice or lessons learned on how you made it through that? Because I would imagine you were getting a lot of unpleasant phone calls, maybe from users and you were just in a situation you didn't expect to be in, but you had to work yourself through it and work yourself out of it. 
how did you, would any other advice based on that experience that you could give other people? I think it's okay to say we made a mistake and roll back an implementation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because what our users really detest is not being heard. And they are complaining that our login times are too long or it is, it, you know, the uh, latency is is causing, you know, delay and being able to get the results that they need very quickly. And then as a CIO, you're just making excuses, right? I think that you look at how it affects the business and then you say, hey, this may not work for us and then elevate, you know, for us, this was a, it was a more of a corporate, our version of a corporate decision and being able to have that voice for our clinicians to say, I understand what this tool does for us and we need something like that, but we cannot because it's hindering patient care. Right. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to do what my mechanic will do when I bring in the car and I say, I have this noise and he'll say, I don't hear it. We don't hear anything. Right. So you don't want to say they're complaining about latency. You don't want to say, well, listen, we see none of that on our end. So have a good day. Right. Right? You don't want to do that. You know, right. Or just say, oh, just come five minutes early. I don't understand. Like, <laughs> hey, listen, I know, you know, medical <laughs> resident, you've been working 14 hours and about six, you know, four hours of sleep. Come in 10 minutes early and log hey. in. What's the issue? Hey, <laughs> listen, that's the way it is. Um, we have to feel their pain. I think that's key to being a CIO. Yeah. So, um, even if even if they're exactly, they may be going off the rails about something that is perhaps relative, relatively fixable, or maybe it's not so relatively fixable. Uh, like you said, Chani, if you are communicating with them, say we hear you. I don't have the answer right now, but we're looking at it. Get, that gets you eighty percent of the way there. It, it really does. And I wanted to mention, you know, what Rich mentioned about the alerts and alert fatigue, because that is so prevalent in healthcare. And I didn't even think about, you're right, about like our network engineers getting all these false, you know, positives, and then they have to, you know, chase it down. And that takes time, time away that, you know, we could be focusing on other things. And, you know, in the medical community, when you, when there's false positives or, or just too many alerts, what happens is, let's just turn it off. <laughs> turn it off or and now you've got it. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, or even worse, they'll have the workarounds, right? And then, of course, the very thing that the device or tool was supposed to do in a sense of helping patient care, patient safety, is the opposite because they're no longer using it. And Rich, we're probably seeing that because everyone's going to set things on the vendor side. They're going to set it to over alert rather than under alert initially, right? Because then at least you've been alerted, right? Because if you know they're not going to set it to under alert. You can't tell me that you can't tell me that we didn't tell you about this incident. Right. So, exactly. Right. So over alerting is a problem on the security side. Um and and Rich in, in your arrangement, you're you you you've hired an outside group that lets you know about threats, but they're not going to chase it down and sort of remediate that that gets passed on to you. Anything heavy duty, they would reach out to our team. But a lot, you know, oftentimes you can get an alert for something as basic as um, hey, you're not typical. Best practice is not to have a, this particular port open. 
well, we have to keep it open because a certain vendor is requiring it. And uh, yeah, while we haven't restricted, it is technically not closed. So there's oftentimes uh, gratuitous alerts that come over that, yes, strictly speaking, in accordance with best practice, you shouldn't do X, but healthcare in some ways does not always um, identically mirror the real world. And what someone might say is something that could be problematic is something we have to do in our world to make sure that we're interoperating properly. So, um, yeah, so yeah, it's they, they, I mean, they, they would reach, I mean, they, they help us proactively by making sure that we've got our firewall up to date with the latest indicators of compromise. They know what are unlikely to be impactful in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, we're aware of it because we can see it, but, um, we don't have to track our people down in the middle of the night for every single thing that happens. Yeah, yeah. Brian, go ahead, Channing. Yeah, I was just, you know, I was thinking about an application that it was recommended to uh, remove from all our devices, and we'll end up breaking one of the medical devices, right? Because they use that particular application um, and within its within its software. And so now it's like, oh, you know, you you have this vulnerability, you have this vulnerability. Yes, we know that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but we have to live with that vulnerability. Otherwise, we break the device, right? Um, right. Yep. Brian, what, I think what, it's, go ahead. I was going to say, I think uh, to your point, Rich, the, um, you know, you've got that vendor port open, like you said, right? And so the systems are alerting you this isn't best practice, but you've got other mitigating controls in place, right? Now, the... The, the tools don't know that, right? You know, as smart as AI might be, the tools can't figure out that like, well, yeah, we've got eight layers of defense. This one layer has this one hole in it for a very particular business purpose, but it doesn't have the whole context of your environment, right? Exactly. And so I think we spend a lot of time chasing down that like, yeah, 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 we know it's not best practice per se, but in our environment, though, that we're configured, we're mitigating that elsewise. Um, I think those are really, uh, that's where we also see a lot of that alert fatigue is like you start to ignore the best practices because like it's always telling us about stuff that we know and already accepted as a risk so stop telling me about this well stated absolutely so brian we talk you know we're talking about tools that can over alert you provide a tool and i would imagine one of the things you, you guys try and make sure with pro tennis is that we're not doing that to our customers we're not right. giving them something that's sending them running all over the place all the time because then we've covered our butt Right? right, we're good. We we told you about every little thing you figured out. As a, a service provider or a vendor, a provider of a tool, at least you know what we do over at Health System CIO is you know one of the philosophies is for any customer of ours, we try and make it as light a lift as possible. So if you buy something, if you sponsor something, I'm not going to dump then when you say yeah we'll take it a whole bunch of things you have to do. That's always mm -hmm. been one of my philosophies. So I would imagine you, you know, every good provider comes up with something like that where we're going to make your life easier. I'm not, mm -hmm. you didn't buy this and now you got a ton of work to do. So how do you do that at ProTennis? How do you, what's the philosophy? What's, what's the, how does the product make sure you don't dump everything on poor Chani and Rich? Right, right. Um, it's it's a definitely a really hard problem to solve. Uh, false positives are something we kind of obsess about. Um I think one of the things that we do is really heavily leaning into a, a risk-based approach. Um, you know, we sell ourselves as the company that's going to help you to reduce risk. I don't think you can ever, uh, certainly in like things like patient privacy, there's always going to be gray areas, right? Maybe this is okay. Maybe it's not. Um, 
And you need a human to interpret some of those things. What we tell our customers, because we know you you can't possibly look at every single alert, right? We're going to look at all the alerts for you. We're going to look at all the data. We're going to pull everything out. And what we're going to do is just give you the most suspicious activity that we've seen in your system. Um, there's a lot of uh, kind of customer education we do along those lines. Because you said earlier, like, no, just send me everything. We have customers who ask that. Send us everything that might be remotely suspicious. It's like, look, every single access is at least a little bit suspicious, right? You can't you can't operate from a... Uh, wanting to to drink the ocean it's you just you're gonna get overwhelmed way too fast so we really do lean a lot on you know finding the most suspicious activity the the oddest behaviors we've seen in the system like really focusing on what's out of the ordinary and having some, kind of like a threshold of first we're just going to send you the top 10 percent most suspicious activity you need to focus on these things then when you've cleared all those behaviors out you'll start to get more of the less suspicious because they'll start floating to the top. And it gives us a way for the organizations to really uh, intelligently triage through, especially at the beginning of an engagement where who knows what's going on in the organization, right? All right, very good. Let's have some fun. Let's go to my favorite segment where we find out what's on our panelists' minds and see if they can help each other and our audience. So, Brian, <laughs> actually, I want to start with you. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I do. I, uh, I'll go to Rich first. So uh, what you mentioned earlier about kind of that outsourcing is something that I've been considering for our team, um, you know, continually to grow the internal security team because of the breadth of experience we need is going to be very difficult for us. Um, but I'm wondering if you have found that to be, uh, obviously it sounds like you're having success with it. Like how cost effective is that? You know, we talk about outsourcing, you know, getting a tool. How do we justify the cost of that? Um, how do those kind of conversations go in your organization? I, you know, we we sort of tested the waters on that when we uh, converted to a, a cloud a cloud hosted EHR system or a MetaTech, and, mm. we, and we we did that we did MetaTech on prem for many many years. But at that point, we had a couple of network engineers, and it was just very risky to be able to run a um, entire twenty four by seven health system um, based on a couple of engineers coming in and saving the day. Maybe one's on vacation, maybe one's inaccessible. What do you do? So. I think we're able to sort of build the paradigm of understanding that you want this is so important that you want to make sure that you have people who have the wherewithal to be able to identify, address, and remediate things 24 by 7 and a dedicated group of people whose role in life it is to do that. And I think that logic also that we did for the EHR also wound up bleeding into the idea of we need to have a dedicated um a dedicated third party who's always watching our network, given the uh, cybersecurity environment that we're in now. So mm. it wasn't too big a lift. I think because no one, no one wants to, um, no one wants to say, you know, we weren't careful enough, and now we got hit, and you know, we, our business is profoundly affected by it. So I think there was an understanding right. that we really need to make sure that we're putting up the uh, putting up the wall, putting up that fence 24 by 7, and we've got people on the other side of the fence who will protect it at any time. And that's something with a small a small group you really can't practically do with the effectiveness that you need to. Right. No matter how good your group is, my group is really good. It's just um, it's not enough resource. That's right. Very good. Rich, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I'll, I'll, throw, this out to, I'll throw this out to both of my uh, co-panelists. One of the things I think about from time to time is even with having a um, you know having an outsourced um, technical operations center. 
What if it's an interesting, I mean, I think about there's a local community college here. It's got an excellent cybersecurity program. And they're always asking me about, hey, can you do internships um, for our people? <laughs> I'm sorry. And I'd love to on one level. I always want to be able to, you know, tap into new blood and give people the opportunity to um, shine and get real world experience. But I also, you know, worry about if they make one little mistake, um, God knows what could happen. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Uh, what are your thoughts on trying to bring in interns to maybe augment your um, cybersecurity um, defenses? Jenny, let's go with you first. Sure. So that actually was presented to me last summer uh, with a student. And the student actually happened to be a dependent. So their parent was a, was a military member. And so they had access to be able to come into our facility and to come onto the installation. And but it was a little bit more challenging, you know, making sure we had the background checks because I was actually really more concerned of that. Right. Like now we're getting access and they're getting access to our you know, information and data. And if they're not like a, an employee, how, how do we ensure that they follow through with the access? And so we thought long and hard how to do this. Unfortunately, it was before the student was able to start. <laughs> um, and so hopefully this coming summer, the student will be able to come back because now I'm fairly comfortable how we can bring in that type of talent or bring in talent and kind of grow them. And also in the meantime, help us as well. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. And that was a, sort of a military-specific challenge with the background checks, and um, a little bit, but I mean, more or less. I mean, I don't know how you know, maybe in private sector, how do you uh, vet you know your employees? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, you don't want a, a potential bad actor that says, "Hey, like I just want to come mm -hmm. and learn because I want to you know a career in cyber." Yeah. And so, and then you bring them into your organization, and then next thing you know, you gave them key to the kingdom, right? The Trojan horse, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brian, any thoughts? You, you, right. you talked about trying to expand your resources, possibly doing some outsourcing. Uh, you looking at a yeah, something like that. I think the biggest challenge we've had we've we've attempted it not specifically in um, on our security team, but other places. And I think for smaller organizations, it's really hard to do because of one, your resources are probably covering a very wide breadth of things, um, and so. You can't really bring an intern in. If you've got one particular job or a project you want them to work on, we've had some success with something like that, but not just to generally augment the team just because there's so much to learn, um, especially specifically about the environment. Um, I think the other team being a small, uh, the other problem we've had being a pretty small team is just the bandwidth for the existing engineers, right? Like if I bring somebody in today and I tell my already overtaxed team, hey, we have an intern, they're gonna help you. <laughs> but first for the next six weeks, you're gonna teach them everything you know. Like they're like, we don't have time for this. They're gonna right. tell them to go get coffee and fill out spreadsheets or something. Right. Like it's just not gonna happen. Right, right. So Yep. All I right. That. Go that ahead. Was, yeah, I absolutely agree. My network team was like <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it's different if somebody's been hired in a junior position and sort of you're investing in a resource that's, that's not right. anticipated to immediately leave that's a different story than you know hey little jimmy's going to be spending the summer with you teach him everything you know right you know and little jimmy you know rolls in 20 minutes late and takes a three-hour <laughs> lunch anyway we we won't talk what i don't even know what generation they are now x y z what are they Millennium, Rich, what what are they? What are the kids? Jerry, Jerry's and Z, I think, are the latest ones that are in the Z. workforce. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, right, Z, Z. 
So I don't know about all that. I'm a, I'm a much older generation, though. So I'm. I, you're A, right? We're at Z, and you're A. I, I'm technically a baby boomer. <laughs> <laughs> technically a baby boomer. Very. You good. know, they all they all look at me like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you're a very hip guy, Rich. So let's I keep try. that in mind. I, 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 think, I, I think Generation Z, but my body tells me I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right, Chani, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Sure. So I've I have argued that cybersecurity is a part of the patient part of patient care, patient safety. However, of course, in the good old days, it was all about yes, no, we can do this, but now it has to be a part of the care. How do you have a culture that motivates cybersecurity behavior? It's a great question. Uh, Rich, let's start with you. How do you create that cyber? I mean, and I hear it a lot. I interview a lot of CISOs and, and you know, we talk to a lot of CIOs and it's such a huge thing that everybody wants to ingrain that, make that part of the culture. That is a very good question. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we don't define cybersecurity as my network engineers in their corner of the building doing their thing. I mean, well, that's certainly a substantial subset of it, but cybersecurity touches everything. It touches password policies. It touches workflows. It touches how we um, apply multi-factor authentication in the right places. It um, touches policies and procedures that we have to make sure that we're keeping PHI sacrosanct. Um, it also looks at things like uh, disaster, God forbid, disaster recovery and business continuity. Those are things that go well beyond information systems and really get imbued in the entire organization. So when we think of cybersecurity, we try to think you know, here at Deborah that it's not just the information systems people. It is everybody. I mean, operations has to be thinking about it. Um, do we have well time? Do we have uh, well defined and robust downtime procedures, and then reload procedures when a system comes back up? You know, we in IS we can help with that, but we can't do that. So it really operationalizes a lot of components of cybersecurity because we have to be involved in that. There are legal ramifications too in terms of making sure that we're running a tight ship, and if there is any kind of a breach in that ship, how do we react to them properly, appropriately? And in a manner that minimizes risk and maximizes the um, maximizes our ability to get back on our feet with the least collateral damage. Um, so it's it's so much more than just uh, technology. It's everything. And as long as everybody buys into that, it's um, woven into everything that you do. Uh, I think that's how you really promote an, or- an organizational uh, culture around cybersecurity. I think we've done a good job of that. We could always be doing better, but I think we do a good job of that here. I mean, it's, we have many people involved. Um, we have a separate committee called the Cybersecurity Administrative Committee, which is a leadership committee that talks cybersecurity policy and vets policies and procedures and vets workflows that we need. So, yeah, it it, it has to really break out of the cocoon of being a technology thing and more of an enterprise thing. Like like you said, Johnny, of uh, patient patient care because part of patient care is caring for that patient's information. So, Rich, uh, just to follow yeah. up on that, get a little more. Um... You know, you talked about weaving it into everything you do. So you talked about committees. That's a way to sort of formalize it into the governance, kind of weave cybersecurity in through maybe committees where it's focused on that. Um, I'm sure your voice in meetings, um, there's probably opportunities to work with HR, marketing, signage, things like that. 
but talk if you want a little more specifically on how we know we want it to be part of the culture. What are some ways that people in your position can can do that, can get that to pervade out? I think this is where, as a CIO, you have to have a kind of a bit of a marketing perspective as well. You have to brand cybersecurity as something which is vital. You have to be messaging it. You have to get the message out to the right people. You have to get the right people enthused about it. And it's uh, ironic that my my graduate degree is in marketing, and here I am as a CIO. And it's like, well, how did um how did you make that connection? But you know, point of fact, I think everything that we do in many ways is marketing. And we're marketing an idea. We're marketing you really, this may be a little inconvenient to you. Yes, you have to do a multi-factor authentication. You didn't before. But think of why this is really a good idea. Think of the consequences if we didn't do this. And you have to figure out what vehicles you use to communicate this. I mean, do you, you know, do you, do you like you said, do you have signage? Do you have screensavers? Do you have programs that uh, get people excited about this sort of thing? So it really does become a project wherein it's um something that we we're trying to we're trying to market the market it as a product but a product that we all want we all need and we all have to get our arms around and we want other people to be excited by that not just to feel like oh god we have to do this because they're doing it to us well Channing, let me mm-hmm. get your thoughts on that you asked the question but what are your thoughts on sort of the specific mechanisms that people in your position can use to get the messaging out yeah, no, I like it, um, Rich, and I, I jotted some things down about your committee. So um, I'm going back to the branding, and I'm also looking at how do you you motivate internally, right? And so I'm starting new initiative, uh, starting a new year. I'm starting a lunch and learn series, and and I'm having my team teach certain things. The first the first team is going to be the cyber team. But instead of just saying, here's cybersecurity, and this is why it's important, we're really going to look at focusing on things of how do you safeguard yourself at home, mm-hmm. right? You, you know, changing your network passwords and things of that nature. And ideally, I'm like, if I can get people interested on how to protect themselves personally, then maybe we can, they would they would take those same habits in the workplace, and so mm-hmm. that's one initiative. And then we here, we have a small TV studio. Our public affairs creates these videos. And so I volunteer to do some cyber uh, best practices videos. Mm-hmm. And so it's getting edited up. And they play against all of the TVs in the hospital. And so we'll see if my acne baby will be <laughs> Well, and, and what you said about relating it to uh, and sort of helping people in their personal lives with cyber, I've heard that. Other people say that as well, that they're using that as a technique to get through to their employees to say, here, this is going to help you in the totality of your life. Most people have gotten that email from the credit card company that says, was this you? Click no. All right. Canceled your card. So, um, you know, they're used to that at home. But anyway, it's it's a technique that, I, that I've heard. So, um, Brian, uh, your thoughts around anything that that you've heard here in the last few minutes? Yeah, I'm not going to repeat everything uh, that you two said because it was definitely spot on. I think the one thing that um, I'll just add something that I think is pretty unique. Um, you talk about buy-in, Rich, and the uh, getting that internal motivation, Johnny. I think the one thing that I know uh, we've done at Pretennis, which I absolutely love, uh, where I was previously before Pretennis, this was always a struggle, right? Um, at Pretennis is definitely the place I've seen that as an organization cares the most about cybersecurity. And one of the things we do is we actually invite 
our customers in to talk to our teams, like voice of the customer and understanding like the real ramifications of PHI compromises or drug diversion for the products that we're building. But just, just the fact that, you know, we're, we're the custodians and we're being entrusted with all of this data. That's extremely important has real impacts on real people's lives. Um, you know, the entire organization rallies around that. It's, it really brings that buy-in to really understand the real-world ramifications of what we're doing, right? It's very easy to say, oh, it's MFA. I don't like MFA. It's like, yeah, but if we don't prove you are who you say you are, these are the things that happen. Like, these are real-world people's lives being impacted if we're not doing this the right way. So, I'm going to leave that. All right, listen, uh, we're almost out of time. I'm going to give us a, a lightning round of last, last thoughts, last piece of advice for those based on uh, anything we've discussed today, really. Um, but I guess we can frame it around the core idea of the webinar, which is uh, making sure a tool, you have the resources to handle anything you're bringing on board. Um, so final lightning round of thoughts. Rich, you go first. Learn as much as you can about what kinds of tools are out there. Embrace the process of learning about them, but always keep a slightly jaundiced eye in terms of what they're promising to uh, deliver to you, as opposed to what, practically speaking, they're going to deliver to you. Excellent. Channy? That it's not the IT department's um, problem to solve. It's an organization's problem to solve on how do we secure the organization. Excellent. Brian, we'll give you the last word. I'd say um, build up your network for people who may have used these tools before. Um, something I've never been very good at, but definitely get to know other people in the space solving the same problems, ask their advice. Has anyone else used this tool? What were your experiences? It's like the only way I've found to get real, real world feedback on some of these before you bring it in-house. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to work with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming events. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Chani Cordero, the, the budding actress, actress Chani Cordero, Rich Temple from the wilds of New Jersey, and our new friend, Brian Reavy. I want to thank Pro Tennis, who's been with us a number of times here for sponsoring, and you for attending. But with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.